Hi, and welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm your host, Sam Stern, and I'll be guiding you through this program. Today, I have on two guests who are better at doing podcasts than me. They are the brilliant writers, Steve Almond and Cheryl Strayed. You might know Cheryl Strayed by uh, her book, Wild. It's a memoir of her trip hiking the Pacific Crest Trail as a novice. It's widely read. It was turned into a movie starring Reese Witherspoon recently. She's also the author of the book Torch, as well as Tiny Beautiful Things, a book that Cheryl says became a self-help book almost by accident. Uh, Tiny Beautiful Things is a collection of letters and replies drawn from her popular advice column, Dear Sugar. Steve Allman is the author of many books himself, uh, including God Bless America, My Life in Heavy Metal, and Candy Freak. Steve is hilarious and a highly observant student of human nature, which may in part be due to him having been raised by a pair of psychoanalysts. I was raised by one, so I have an opinion in this matter. Uh, this pair also, however, hosts an advice-oriented podcast called Dear Sugar, where they offer touching, engaging responses to listeners' letters. It's a very cool podcast, kind of an existentialist uh, advice column for the modern era, if you ask me. Steve and Cheryl are incredibly articulate, thoughtful people, very deep, and they artfully fielded my vague questions about writing and what it means to be a person who thinks about other people for a living. And uh, I love it when my guests make this program run so smoothly and seamlessly. I could have just put a mic down in front of uh, Steve and Cheryl and walked out of the room, and I'm sure the result would have been equally as brilliant. These people are creative allies. They're creative role models for us all. I think it's fair to say they're good sports. I made them sit on the floor for our interview because I didn't have any chairs but they adapted, they survived. So with no further ado, here's my conversation with Cheryl Strayed and Steve Almond. This is great. I haven't interviewed two people at the same time, so I'm a little new at that. And I don't know, just thanks so much for taking the time to do this. Thank you. We're glad to be here. How's the week been so far? Wonderful. Yeah, it's, it, been, it's been magical. It always is. It always is. Every year, this is my sixth or seventh year coming here at this time and this week teaching this kind of workshop for five days. And at the outset, I've learned, you know, there's that feeling sometimes in the room of trepidation or this, you know, what's going to happen. I can sense some of the attendees are like, am I in the right place? Did I make the wrong decision by coming here? And always by the end of day one, people are coming up to me and saying, you're right, this is magical and it's wonderful. So it always is. I mean, what is the goal? Is it that they're going to get in and like generate a bunch of pages or is they're going to find inspiration? Well, I uh, wouldn't presume to have a goal for, for each person. I, I feel like people come here with their own intentions right. and my job is to support them and to help them. Um, so for some people, it is generating a lot of pages. For some people, it's writing for the first time and it's, and it's catharsis and therapy and processing. And for other people, it's really developing their craft and learning from writers who, you know, are further down the path. And I, that, that was one of the, the values when I founded this week. It was, I wanted to welcome people from all sorts of, you know, experiences with writing from the beginner to the advanced. Yeah, right. 
one of the things that is not in this the ecosystem is a lot of publishing anxiety, ego stuff, mm-hmm. which is rare because most. Hello. Sorry about that. <laughs> take it from I the top, Almond. Take it from the no, top. No, no, I was just. <laughs> Cheryl's not going to say it because she. But you've created. She's really created uh, something that's pretty sui generis among writing conferences. It's not a writing conference, I guess exactly, but there's serious discussion of craft, and people do have their own agenda. And you hear, we heard the first night, some people want to generate pages, other people really, literally, are writing for the first time. So there's a level of sophistication to the teaching, but a lot of it, most of it is generative. So people are actually writing stuff. And I think people, when they're writing, they're going in search of themselves in some way or another. Sometimes it's in fictional disguise and sometimes there's this sort of overlay of anxiety about will it get published and in what venue. And there's just almost no discussion of that here. We hear maybe a little bit at the end of the week amongst the more experienced uh, campers, writers, whatever, uh, but it's almost entirely absent during the week, which is just, you don't know how rare that is unless you're part of the writing community where yeah. there's this overlay of professional jealousy and anxiety and where am I in the big hierarchy? How to get in. How to, how to how get to in. And also how to get in and also how to curry favor with the right people and network. And it's just not that vibe, which is part, it's primarily Cheryl and the week she's created, but Esalen and this space also enforces that idea. Yeah. I mean, well, there's a reason that I decided to to create this kind of workshop in this place. Right. And I think those I think those workshops that that really do emphasize how to get published and how, how to network in right. the literary orbit and all that. You know, this I don't have a criticism of those kinds of workshops. Right. I think that there were points in my own career that I needed the answer to those questions. I needed to learn how to uh, to, to work in that kind of you know, use, you know, have that kind of knowledge. Right. But I think that it's just not important that it's here. This is about, I love the idea of creation, you know, of making something that didn't exist before. And I love knowing that, you know, the 140 some students that we've had in these five days are all leaving uh, with something that didn't exist in the world before. Yeah, like, you know, and, and so that to me is a beautiful thing. And, you know, answering questions about how to get published, it doesn't feel like a beautiful thing to me. It feels like uh, some, yeah. you know, pretty important information at a certain point in one's career. But I don't want to do it here at Esalen. And that's not where I want to put my energies as a teacher. Do you talk about process? I had questions for you guys have been doing this for a while and you've reached like a level of success and comfort with the art. Do you speak about your process with uh, with the writers here? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think this is what we do. Essentially, this is how we were taught is, you know, writers who were a bit of, you know, who had had experience publishing before we were published. We asked them, how did you do this? How did you learn how to write? Yeah. And they told us, and and they told us their stories, and that's what we do as teachers, too. We tell students our stories. How did Steve first figure out what it means to have empathy on the page, or how you know any number of things that all the teachers here share? I mean, writing as an activity. I love when Hollywood tries to, like, have the movie about the writer. It's like, oh, there he is, his typewriter. Another crumpled paper goes in the waste paper basket. It's like, it's boring. It's just, it's just what all the action is happening inside of somebody. And it's maybe transmitted into their keyboard and there's a little clacking, but that's it. It's a person alone in the room and sort of in conversation with themselves and their, their memories and the world and their imagination. And it's thrilling on the page, but it's not dramatically satisfying to... 
That being said, so I get this question about process, Cheryl. I'm sure you get it even more than I do. And what I always say is figure out, which is something, frankly, that I stole from Amy Bender. And that's all we do, frankly, is just appropriate advice from other writers that's good advice and pass it along. Um, She basically said, you know, think about where you have created the best thing you've written and think about the circumstances that are obtained when, when you wrote that piece and try to replicate those. Was it at night? Was it in the morning? Was it in a public place? Was it in a private place? Were you drinking coffee? Were you drinking booze? You know, was there music playing? Was it Coltrane or was it, you know, Metallica? And that is, I mean, it sort of seems too simple, but people think that, and Cheryl, I know you deal with this all the time. They think that we have this sort of cache of secrets or we have some fairy dust that we can maybe, if we're benevolent and they ask the right question the right way, we'll, you know, sprinkle them with it. God, if I had that fairy dust, I'd be bathing in it, you know? The the point is for people to figure out what works for them and then how to create a space for that in their lives that's sustainable. Yeah. So that's what I'm always saying. Like, don't ask me whether you should do an MFA. Ask yourself, do a self-inventory and say, do I need that time, those two or three years to take it seriously? Or can I create a practice without it, right? Yeah. People hate it, but that's the real true answer is you can't say it's really up to you. You got to really do a self-inventory. Yeah. And, you know, and just the same when you even talk about how to how to write. So there's, you know, the, the process, when do you write and under what conditions is good work made? And also, how do you make good work? Right. The, the answer is always, unfortunately, you just have to write a lot yeah. and you have to read a lot. Okay. I don't write every day. But I have t- errors in my life when I'm writing every day and writing a lot. And certainly when I was apprenticing myself to the craft right. and learning how to be a writer, the only way I found my way to any um, work that I might look at and say, okay, I finished that or I feel a sense of accomplishment is I wrote and I wrote and I wrote and I wrote. I didn't have any answers. I didn't, there wasn't this idea that I knew how to write a novel or I knew how to write a memoir. I simply wrote a whole lot and thought very hard and revised and revised and revised. And that's how a book is made. And there's always this sort of, you, you know, you talk about this in the, in the classroom and people look sort of sad because what you're telling them is you just have to work really hard no and nobody is going to give yeah. you the, the little, the golden key that unlocks the golden door. Right. What you can do though, and I think what this uh, week in particular tries to emphasize is, you know, it's not about the noun of being a writer. In fact, the the idea that you are a writer, capital W, is poison to somebody's artistic development. Uh, it's just a kind of, it's essentially an anxiety about whether they're worthy or whether the story's interesting enough. It's a kind of ego drama that isn't about the story they're trying to tell. It's about them and their worth relative to some imagined set of readers or an audience. But the verb to write is much more important. And that's, I mean, that's what I think the, is important about having generative workshops is everybody can see, oh, well, if I'm, if I'm writing, then I'm, I'm, I guess I could think of myself as a writer, but what's more important is that at the moment I am writing. This person has induced a state in which I'm paying very careful attention to some set of memories or some imagined set of events. And that's what matters. When I always say when we start these generative exercises, please don't try to be a writer. Please don't make pretty sentences. Please don't worry about, because that you know, that kind of self-consciousness just will completely destroy your spontaneous, intuitive, unconscious decisions. And your artistic unconscious is like 20 times more powerful than your conscious intent to write a nice sentence. Yeah, yeah. So. Where's the learning curve now? What's difficult for you and what's um, 
interesting in that way, challenging. Like after you've you've written a successful book, you've mm-hmm. written ten successful books. Well, I'm going to speak for Cheryl because I know it's even truer for her than it is for me. I think the real difficulty, uh, especially for Cheryl, but for me to a lesser degree, is how do I um, re- re- how do I create space in my life to do the very solitary, lonely, doubt-choked work of writing when there are all these other exciting things that I could be doing that are meaningful and valuable. You know, Cheryl spends a lot of time putting this week together, organizing it, being pleasantly in control of all the logistics and working things out with Esalen and all the students. It takes a lot of energy, creates this beautiful week, but that is time that she doesn't have to devote to the next thing. We do this amazing podcast, which we love doing, but it kind of devours us for a week out of every two or three months. And then Cheryl has film stuff and a stage stuff, you know, lots of things that make it very difficult for a person who, like both of us are this way, we naturally want to really have an impact on the world, connect to people, you know, sort of make an impact. It's hard given all those very positive possibilities and opportunities to say, all right, I need to step away from that and go back to my Warren and figure out what the next thing is, where you don't feel in control of it and you don't feel like you're making an impact. It's sort of, you have to just live in that doubt of, is this going to work? Is this thing worth it? And also for Cheryl, especially, but for me too, there's pressure. People are watching now. You have an audience that has expectations. Right, before nobody cared. I remember when I was a sophomore in college at the University of Minnesota, there's this wonderful poet named Michael Dennis Brown. And I was in an introduction to creative writing class. And part of the class was that they would ask different writers um, to come into the classroom and, and tell us about their writing career. And he... Uh, he brought. He walked onto the stage, and he had maybe six or eight books, all by him, poetry collections. And he set them um, on this table in the center of the stage. And he pointed to them and said, "I've written all these books, and every time I begin a new one, it's like absolutely starting from scratch. It's like absolutely having never written a book before." Mm-hmm. And I didn't believe him because I was, you know, 20 and, you know, I was like, no, you're, you've got it made, but it's really true. And, and, you know, for me, the hardest part, it's everything Steve said, there are all these um, distractions and, and some of them are valid. You know, one of one piece of being a writer, especially writers like the the two of us, you know, we're, we're, we're not introverts, really. We, we, Steve and I both really like teaching and we like bringing our work into the world and we like making connections. And, right. you know, I, I, I feel like it's one of the greatest gifts of my life like that I've had the, yeah, that yeah. I've had the opportunity right. to talk to people all over the world about my work. And, and, and not because it's me talking about me, it's actually me hearing about what my work meant to them, how, yeah. you know, hearing their stories. And so that's, a, that's cool, but it does keep me from what I really want to do now is write that next book. And and to write that next book, I have to overcome all of the same things that I had to overcome at the beginning of every book. And that is just to find my way to the intuitive place right. that Steve spoke about. I agree with him absolutely 100%. You know, that that's where the writing is done. And I'm always telling my students, you know, trust your intuition. And of course, you, you begin with an idea and and you know it will lead to nothing if you don't trust that that you have to let that idea fall away eventually and that's a really scary thing to do this is why most people don't ultimately 
you know, want to be artists because that's what you have to trust. You have to trust the unknown and you have to do it over and over again. And I will say that the one thing I think gets a little easier is the, the, the length of time, you know, between sort of going from that, that place of beginning to that place of sinking into the work has shortened. Um, as I've, as I have become a more experienced writer and it's maybe because I trust the process more, I know that it will come and all I have to do is work, keep working and it will, it will come and that, 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 that kind of truth will reveal itself. But, um, and maybe it doesn't take me as long to get there anymore. Well, it's interesting what you're speaking about in, in that success in a certain way can be a stumbling block. I want to steal a question <clears throat> from Tim Ferriss, who's another podcaster that I really uh, enjoy, um, which is, can you think of any failures that set you up for future success? Every damn right. thing. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, every, yeah. I mean, that's, that's yeah. it. You don't know about our failures because we wrote and we wrote and we wrote and we wrote. Yeah. And there's a lot of stuff that that never made it into the world. And also just more broadly, you know, most of what we write about are failures. Yeah. You know, Cheryl's book opens with this moment of like, she loses her boot, you know, she's completely ill-equipped or the the scene that so many people connect to is Cheryl undertaking this, you know, odyssey with not, uh, with having completely- I can't even lift my pack. You can't even lift your pack. People live actually where they live is in doubt and uncertainty and this kind of any sort of moral assurance is just it's demented. I mean, it's sort of the trademark of of fascist thought. It's like being absolutely sure that you're right or it's a response to anxieties that lead to really bad political, social and psychological circumstances. People are really in doubt all the time. So we find ourselves always, 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 always say to people, you know, run towards the shame. That's where the truth is hiding, always in that area. And and also in this state of rather than writing, and Charles D'Ambrosio talks about this in these in these essays, loitering is every essay begins in doubt. And if it's any good, it sort of stays there in a certain way because that's what readers can really connect to. So I don't look at failures. I mean, it's very painful to not succeed at something. And it, I get down on myself about it. I have a lot of failed projects that never take off and I beat myself up about it. But I also have realized that doubt is kind of your engine. Mm-hmm. You know, it's sort of the thing that keeps you going. And if you ever reach a point of self-satisfaction, I don't think it would be possible to do something as lonely and just sort of grueling in its isolation and concentration requirements as writing. There's a lot easier ways to get attention mm-hmm. you know, that aren't on layaway. Yeah. Yes to everything Steve said. And one thing that uh, this, uh, I've had a very interesting past few years because of the success of Wild. I've been asked to give talks at a lot of places that are not in the literary world. So uh, I'll be talking alongside somebody who is the CEO of a, a really high-end uh, like shoe company in Maine or somebody, the, the guy who founded like Blue Bottle Coffee in San Francisco or any number of these. Or introducing um, Hillary Clinton. Or introduce, yeah, so these people who have been asked to tell their stories and you know I'm like the, the, the artist who gets to tell her story and then there's the corporate executive who tells his or her story and, and on and on and on. And one thing that struck me about all of those stories that I had, I mean, really, honestly, all of those stories are a litany of the things that failed and um, mistakes that were made. And I think that success is so much about 
uh, learning how to live in that doubt that Steve talks about and how to actually see that kind of failure and mistake making as, as, um, as signs of growth and courage. Right. You know, I always, I'm, I'm writing a TV show right now with my husband adapting Tiny Beautiful Things um, for HBO. And I'm absolutely terrified because there's a very high chance that I will fail. And I'm not being falsely self-deprecating. I'm not just saying that. It's actually true. And I know that it's true. And I, part of me, you know, I'm thinking, why did I do this? Because I want to like, I, I, I do things that I succeed at. And yet the answer to that is I like to do things that are interesting and hard mm-hmm. because they've always brought me good things in the end. I've always learned from those things. Mm-hmm. It's this fascinating irony in, in it's any creative endeavor. As you get better, I think, or more experience, you move through your apprenticeship, what's happening is you're developing a critical faculty, which is the capacity to judge your artistic decisions without judging yourself or your worth, right? But the irony of that is that as you become sort of stronger as a critic, assessing your own decisions, then you start to see that the work you did six months ago or a year ago or two years ago was crap. And so students are always, but it can block a lot of people because students feel like they start to develop a critical faculty and they realize that they've been writing stuff that's really partial and, you know, whatever, that it isn't like as brilliant as when they thought they created it. And I always have to remind them that's progress yeah. in artistic life and especially in writing. It's progress if your work seems crappy to you. The work right. that you were doing a year ago or, you know, two years ago should seem like you, there were certain category areas that you were making. Well, and if not crappy, certainly, uh, you know, sort of holding things that you know, uh, you know, making mistakes that you no longer make. Right. I had the really interesting experience of um, narrating um, the audiobook for my first book, uh-huh. Torch, which is a novel. And um, it was only after Wild was published that they asked me to do this audiobook. So the, the Torch came out in 2006. And it, so it wasn't until. Uh, like 2012 or 13, that I was recording the audiobook of my first book. And I hadn't read it for years. And when you read an audiobook, you really have to re- read every word yeah, and do. sentence. Yeah. And what was so cool about it was, you know, on one hand, I felt like, okay, th- this is still okay. You know, I'm not ashamed of this book, right. but I, but yeah, I, I could, yeah. but I could absolutely see my younger writer self. Were you tempted to go in and be like, absolutely, you know, change a couple sentences? I would, if I revised that book now, I would revise almost every page. And what it was is, it was so interesting. What I could see in Torch is, I could see my influences. I could see, I could point to the page where I'd say, now here's where I was trying to be like Ray McCarver, yeah. and here's where I was trying to be like Alice Monroe uh, yeah. and Edna O'Brien, and on and on. Really, I could. And Wild, there isn't one page of Wild that I could sh- point to that, even though all those people influenced me and led me to Wild. But by the time I was writing Wild a few years later, I had actually done that thing that we talk about writers doing. I'd found my voice, which only means that I'd relaxed into the idea that I could only be who I was and that my success wasn't going to be about, uh, you know, imitating these great writers. I mean, that, but that, I mean, that's how we learn to write. Like, it's okay that I imitated those writers. That's, that's how you do it. A drawer full of like crappy Dennis Johnson (laughs) ripoffs. That's right. right? Like druggy, hazy stories and some crappy Laurie Moore ripoffs. Yeah. you know, you sort of go, okay, well, that's what I was up to. And then yeah. you become Steve Altman, <laughs> for better or worse. You become a midlist pornographer, and then the rest <laughs> is history, really. 
Let, let's talk a little bit about the podcast. How did it come into being? And it was Steve always has the idea. Steve has gotten me into a couple of you know bits of trouble with this sugar stuff. He yeah, started right. the Dear Sugar column on the Rumpus <laughs> and then handed it off to me. Um, and he also had the idea for the podcast. I he just asked me one day well, to do it. L- l- so the, my business model is that I sort of have a great idea, but I can't really execute it <laughs> so that I get Cheryl. Yeah. She is the person who can actually execute it. But I do have the original idea. That's right. <laughs> um, and it's, it's true. I mean, I think I think one thing, th- so Lisa Tobin, we should also mention, who's our, our producer, and really kind of, you know, it's really the three of us who, sorry, it's really the three of us who um, do it. There's nobody else. There's no other staff. Uh, which I, which doesn't sound exceptional, except you know, in the podcasting world, it's not like it's just one dude and a microphone. It's usually there is usually a kind of whole team of people and producers and so forth. But a lot of that work is really us and and Lisa especially seeing the letters that are coming in, and we sort of want the audience to steer what we're talking about because they know what they're struggling with. But that I want to credit her as the person who said, "Well, do you think?" It, you know, you think Cheryl would be interested in doing, you know, revisiting Sugar? And I said, well, you know, it's not like I hadn't thought about it, but I said, well, you could ask her, but she's pretty busy. I for, it was really when Wild was kind of, I think the film had just come out or was going to come out. And, was it a couple of years ago? Yeah, a couple of years ago. So Like a year and a half ago. Yeah, I mean, I basically wanted, I knew Cheryl's life from knowing her as a friend was insane and crazy. So I was like, I'm not going to ask her, but if you want to ask her, you can ask her, you know. And it was to my great surprise and you know, I was pleasantly shocked that you would entertain the possibility because I knew that we would enjoy it. But did you have time to do it? No, no. it was a super bad idea. Was, and yes. I, I, mean, I, like everything I like, like half the stuff I say yes to. I mean, honestly, like from any reasonable, rational perspective, um, I shouldn't have said yes. Right. <laughs> I mean, actually, I mean, that's just true. I know. That's but, why I didn't have Lisa. I mean, I was sort of like, you can ask her. But, but I, you know, I'm the sort of person who, you know, I like to do things. I, I'm a doer and a joiner and a seeker. And I always find it interesting to try new things. And I like Steve. And so I was inclined to give it a whirl, you know, and that's how I began writing the column too. Right. And, um, you know, so that's, that's sort of just the way I've, I've lived my life, you know, and it's led often to good things. It's been interesting because I've actually had to try to f- temper that because it's also led to things that, you know, lately where it's just like, it's too much yeah. and, and how to, you know, just how to balance my life, um, has been a real question of this era. But what ended up happening too is, you know, we also began the podcast n- just not really having many structured ideas. It was just, okay, let's answer people's questions. And we don't prepare in advance. Like we don't discuss the letters in advance. We, we choose the letters and, and then we get in the studio like we are right now sitting about this far away from each other. And we, we read the letters out loud to each other and talk about them. So what you hear is a real conversation that we're having. Right. And and I think it was apparent one of the things, cause you know, you just, we just tried it out. It was really apparent the first time we recorded in Portland, and it was like, oh, this is really an enjoyable thing to do, to be in conversation with this person, to be listening to what Cheryl has to say and her insights and sort of refining my thinking about certain things, sometimes, you know, really shifting my thinking on certain things. And um, that if the conversation wasn't enjoyable, we just wouldn't do it. 
Yeah. You know, and if it wasn't consistently enjoyable because we enjoy, it's basically when we get to hang out. Yeah. And we have great. It's just so crazy. It's like, we, I know I'm going to get to have like deep, heavy discussions with Cheryl and hang with her family. And, you know, I look forward to that. And, you know, if we didn't enjoy it, it would be very apparent. I mean, yeah, we, reason, we wouldn't do it. Right. We wouldn't do it. And also the, it wouldn't have the same quality of collegiality is the wrong word, but of a kind of. Of of people thinking out loud in a very organic way. Yeah. Is it coincidence that you two are writers who are hosting the show, or is there something about the creation process which is akin to what happens when you put words down on the page? Well, the central thing, which I think really Cheryl discovered in 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 writing the Dear Sugar column, was, you know, the advice column model is pedantic and condescending and artificial, frankly. Uh, I'm struggling with us and such, and the authority will now hand down to me what the proper etiquette or answer is and so forth. And that's not what people want. People want to be heard. They want whatever they're struggling with to be received by people who feel it and understand it in some ways can speak back to them uh, and say, yeah, that's what you're feeling. And that's perfectly reasonable to feel that way, but it might block you from moving forward unless you you know, think about these other th- things that you should do to get yourself unstuck. Cheryl was doing that primarily in, in the column almost entirely by telling her own stories, places where she had failed, places where she was stuck, places where she really struggled and felt lost and bereft. And people are so reassured by that. Um, and so that was really the innovation. So we knew by the time we're at the podcast, because of the work Cheryl had done, frankly, that that was what people were looking for. They weren't looking for answers. They were looking to be heard with whatever they're struggling with and maybe some thoughtful ideas and insights, but that's not the central thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, when, one of the things that I discovered right away when I said yes to writing the Dear Sugar column was that, you know, literature is my self-help. I don't read self-help books. I I shockingly wrote one. You know, when I see tiny, beautiful things in that self-help category, I always think, I I think of myself as the accidental Uh self-help author. Uh, and, and I don't mean to say that there aren't valuable books in that genre. You know, I, I, I'm not discounting that as a genre, but I think really as a culture, we've misunderstood uh, what, what self-help means. You know, the power of story, the power of, right. you know, one person telling the story of their life or their struggle or their suffering, whether that person be a real person or a fictional person who's been created for us by a writer. Those are the things that have been my consolation, uh, my enlightenment my the ways that I've sort of uh, understood myself and the world and others. And I wanted to to give the world that through my own writing. Like that was always my mission. I always had a sense of mission as a writer that I wanted to help people. And, you know, I think I did that. I've, I've done that in all of my books. You know, the thing that people said to me about Torch when Torch first came out is, is thank you. Because that, you know, I understand what it means to grieve too. And you wrote about that in a way that felt true to me. And and so it was interesting when I was handed this opportunity to actually directly help people right. to, to say the whole the whole purpose of this, the stated purpose of an advice column is to help people. And I realized pretty quickly that, that I wasn't doing anything different in the Dear Sugar column as I'd been doing as a novelist or an essayist or a memoirist. And so I just decided to throw away the idea that I was going to be this authority who was going to tell people what to do. And instead I was going to write literary 
essays about what it means to be human, about what it means to love and lose and struggle and triumph. And I put it all into those columns. Right. And in a sense, the letters were a kind of prompt for Cheryl. Yeah. said, oh, yeah. here's this person, this fellow traveler who's struggling with this. And, and what's the story that I can tell them that will make them feel less alone with it and to sort of ultimately realize, yeah, people go through this and it's very difficult and, but they do get through, Mm -hmm. you know, so that's really turning that model of the advice column on its head where you don't say, I have the answer. You say, I too have felt that doubt and that uncertainty and that's tough. And here's my story. And then people go, oh, and then we're just what we're we're saying we will grapple with you. Right. I mean, this so this is what we do on the show is um, we'll tell stories about ourselves if 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 we have some connection to to the topic. Um, we'll call off more often than not our our guests who we call are, are also writers. Um, sometimes they're experts on an issue, mm-hmm. but we're far more likely to call you know a novelist or an essayist who's written you know in some ways on that subject. Yeah. Um, and and I think it's because we do believe we believe in. In, in the power of story as much as we believe in the power of science or any of the, these other ways that we can know something or come at an issue. And it's amazing how much people really respond. They love when we tell stories about ourselves on the show. You know, they, they, they somehow, it, it, it um, you know, I think a letter, and I hear this over and over again, especially in the letters and Tiny Beautiful Things, people will say, well, I read the letter and I thought, ah, oh, that's a problem that I don't have. It's not about me. And then the answer was about them. And I think that that's what we try to do on the podcast too. That like we might be talking, the theme might be, you know, fertility or infidelity or whatever it is, Mm -hmm. but we always try to widen the conversation so that it actually spills over into, you know, it's not just an issue oriented episode. I mean, I'm, I'm not interested in that. Yeah. Is it good for your writing to have uh, a break from the writing in a certain way? Like the, Hmm. I think that something that some writers will grapple with is the isolationist uh, mm-hmm. lifestyle of, of writing. Is it helpful for you to, to remain connected in this way to other people's issues? Well, I think it, I think what I'd say is it's deeply meaningful, rewarding work. I haven't thought about the extent to which I put it in a different category in a yeah. way. But I think one thing it does reflect is, you know, this is what you want when you go to a piece of literature, nonfiction, fiction, whatever it is, poetry, is you want that feeling of being in the room with a wise, dangerous mind, you know, that you're in conversation. And, you know, that's more or less what we try to do is, and it, I, I think I, it's very different from things that are written down. You can't craft it as well. You can't edit yourself into eloquence, but it is the same basic The thing that people come to the podcast for is I think what they also come to good writing for. They want to be in the presence of uh, uh, and hear a kind of or take part in a conversation that somehow implicates them. Even if it's not directly, you know, they are not struggling with infidelity. Certainly struggling with whatever leads us to infidelity. And I'm not sure that it's had an impact on my writing, um, but it, it does. It does keep alive this idea that more or less your job as a writer is to kind of talk onto the page, you know, to get as much of your personality, your insights, in as organic a way as you can onto the page. And I found that kind of writing, nonfiction writing, to be um, probably a little bit easier because you realize it really does come across. People don't want your artistry. They don't want your craft. They want your 
you know, the, the truthful things that you have to say about whatever you're struggling with. Cheryl read this uh, piece last night about, which I've heard you talk about that first, you know, about the birth of her, of her oldest child, Carver, you know, but always in kind of not cocktail chatter, but like, you know, the, the labor war story. Mm-hmm. But this was this much more complicated, but it was exactly the kind of stories, funny, profane, strange and eccentric. Cheryl's always getting herself into some kind of mischief, usually on some other continent. It's always <laughs> some, like weird stranger with one eye and a limp and a parrot on his neck. You just have a, you're like a nut magnet. But it also has Cheryl's deep wisdom, her self-reflection, her thoughts about motherhood, you know, her doubt about it, her deep well of love, her, you know, all that stuff somehow, uh, you know, sort of came out in that piece. And and I think it was more, you know, it was brilliantly crafted, but I can imagine you're, you know, you're telling that story to somebody on the podcast. It just wouldn't be so, you know, so brilliantly right. crafted. Yeah, no, I'm, I, I, I think the podcast is really different from writing, obviously. And especially, you know, when, if you think of the podcast as an extension of, that work that I did as Dear Sugar, I really think of it not quite in that way. I mean, I'm still giving advice, but in such a different form that it's, you know, it's not the same. Um, It's conversation rather than, than writing, but it is digging beneath, which is what's always been interesting to me. You know, I've, that's, that's my thing. Like I love to, I always wanted to know the secret story of us and I get to do, I mean, we get to receive all those letters. And so that's, I mean, I, I would say that every, all being on the other end of those letters, the letters that you never hear on the air, the letters you never read in the column, you know, it just, it, it confirms everything I've come to believe about what it means to be human. And so it expands my, um, my, my view. And in some ways, you know, I, I can see that, um, feeding my work in ways that are, that are discreet and, and not, and not at all direct, but, but present. And, and I would say actually, what it reminds you of when we go through our inbox, people, it's hard to be human. People are carrying around a lot of struggle and a lot, and you don't see it in your most, you know, you might see it with that group that's just right around you, but even relatives and close friends, you don't know everything they're struggling with because the really deepest, darkest, most painful stuff, they, they hold back. And it's this kind of revelation reading these letters, which are, by the way, brilliantly written. You know, everybody says, oh, you must really have to edit those letters. You must have to, it's not. It's, it's partly what, what the writer's camp is getting at is everybody naturally, if they will get out of their own way, is quite a remarkable storyteller. And they mm-hmm. have this amazing, difficult story to tell, which is what it's like for them to move through life and be a human and live with doubt and loss and all these uh, bewilderments that are common to all of us. And that's what you see in these letters that's so astonishing. And it kind of reifies that idea of like, there's nobody... Who isn't str- who doesn't have a, a really tortured, complex internal life and a set of issues that they're struggling with? Um, it's just part of the human arrangement. You sort of go, okay, good, we're in the right line of business. Yeah, mm-hmm. we are. Well, and that's one of the first questions I asked myself when Steve asked me to to take over the Dear Sugar column all those years ago was, you know, how who am I to give anyone advice? And it, it, it demanded that I really rethink what, what, what advice is or, how, you know, what it means, how, how I've received advice. And it, it led me back to, you know, 
literature again, literature being my self-help. And I do think that that we are actually really well trained for this job because yeah. the job of the writer is to, to, to wonder about what it means mm-hmm. to be human. You know, in order to create a character who wants to leave her marriage because she's realized she's a lesbian, we need to be able to imagine all of the things that might go into that moment. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we spent our... 20s and 30s and and maybe even before that, you know, imagining those sorts of things, putting people in conflict with themselves and others on the page Mm -hmm. and trying to make them credible. And so, so we, when people then come and ask us for this advice, it's almost, it's almost like we're using those kind of skills as, as writers that we have to use every day. Mm -hmm. You know, what would it be like to be you? Not everyone um, has that as part of their job description, you know, having to wonder that for hours and years on end, right? right? That's right yeah. And so I really do think that writers are very well prepared. And also though our podcast listeners will note, you know, Steve is brilliant. He's smarter than me. And he was raised by two psych I always want to call them psychotherapists, but they're they're actually yeah. psychoanalysts. Yeah. And he yeah. comes yeah. from this tradition of uh, really, I mean, it's in his bones, that kind of, you know, being able to make those kinds of um, inquiry, inquiries and have those conversations. I think it's part of, you know, really, it's part of where you come from. Yeah, it's true. I, th- I mean, I think, I think of it as like also part of the rabbinical tradition, you know, th- that, that part of what we're doing is, you know, people come to, they, they lose their way, they're struggling and they want somebody. But I, you know, I, I asked Cheryl to take over the column and then asked her to do the podcast or sort of got Lisa to ask her because, you know, I, I'd seen her in action. I understood that both from her work, but also just how she moves through the world, you know, she's she's an advice giver. She's a caretaker. She wants to make sure everybody's doing okay. And she's also really sharp and, I mean, intuitively has a lot of that. It doesn't have to be in the groundwater. You just are a certain sort of person who is always wondering if everybody else is in the same turmoil that you are and or what their sort of turmoil is. Mm-hmm. You know, who's genuinely curious about what people are struggling with and how, you know, how they might be able to help or um, sort of lend some insight to them. So that's a certain personality type. You know, and I have certain, yes, maybe some of that certainly it, it comes through with my parents' profession, but there's also, I think, a kind of tribe of people who are, are, are deeply interested in that kind of intense engagement in people's internal lives. And mm-hmm. those people do wind up being artists and, and in, in particular writers. Yeah. They're drawn to that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, th- that the two of us have that kind of chemistry where we come, we come from very different places in terms of the cultures where we grew up, how we grew up, mm-hmm. our family systems and so forth. But we ended up in the same place, you yeah. know, uh, as writers and we recognized each other. Yeah. Um, and that's nice. Very that's well. Nice. Through our work too. I mean, that's how I, that's how I came to, I first came to know Steve. I was a fan of his work. And really deeply admired um, his intelligence and his heart, and and so uh, that's that's how I came to know Steve, and then I came to know him as a person. Too. Mm-hmm. And that's true of me as well. You know, we met Cheryl on the way. Well, we met in Portland. I think maybe you she had a big. You know, you were starting family. Yeah. Uh, and I was just we were just starting family or discussions around, yeah. and then very quickly, were were my wife was pregnant, um, and you know we met. Cheryl on the way in Utah, I guess, on the way yeah. across the country. And my wife was pregnant. She told 
my wife, very charmingly, this amazing story of the birth of her first son. Who was 11 pounds. Who was 11 pounds and was <laughs> had at home after many, many hours, more than one day. No, not, not hours, days. I know, days, it's almost at a week. But at any rate, she was very, in the way that she told it to Aaron was not, you know, the war story to terrorize you, but, you know, you get through it and it's beautiful. But well, I was saying, you can do this. this. You can do this, right. And she was very moved by that. We got Torch. Uh, and both read it. And, you know, we we became fans and admirers and knew, I mean, the irony is that we thought of Cheryl as the author of Torch, you know, and then finally the world said, no, she's the author of Wild. And we're like, no, she's the author of Torch. <laughs> yeah. The world wins. The world wins. Great. Well, I know you got to get out of here. Yeah. Well, awesome. Thank you so much for both for speaking with yeah, me Yeah, it was our pleasure. It was great talking to you. Teaching at Esalen. Yeah, oh, we love it. We love Esalen. We'll be back next year. Nice. Thanks. All right. Oh, okay. I have to get up. My, no, my foot, no. my foot, is, my legs <laughs> asleep. Like, I really don't think I can get up. Oh. I can say, Steve, is, I'm so glad that you are also having this oh. trouble. Because <laughs> it's it, middle age. Okay, hold on. It, we're going to get, we're going to get, oh. If it was just going to be me, oh. I was going to have to cover my, okay, not like, oh. this, this Thanks so much for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's show was produced in conjunction with Cheryl Franzel, Geraldine Hess, Lori Putnam, Shannon Hudson, and Ian Golden. Our music today is performed by Wineland. It's a song called Hardly Worth Saving. If you want to hear more episodes of Voices of Esalen, and I'm sure you do, please subscribe to us on iTunes. Uh, you can also find us on the web at esalen.org. That's E-S-A-L-E-N. Until next time, thanks very much and be well.